Hello, baby! This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael. Hey, welcome to another episode of Growing Up Rock. With me today is Bob Hamill. How you doing, buddy? Good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your show. Now, Bob, you're, you're over on the West Coast, right? Yes. Uh, I live just outside of Los Angeles in a place called uh, Rancho Palos Verdes. Sweet. And you and I have a friend in Courtney Cronin Dole, and she uh, was kind enough to hook us up for this episode. Thank you, Courtney. We appreciate it. Thanks, Courtney. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, she's, she's, a, great, she's a very cool girl. I'll admit it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to get her on the show eventually when her busy schedule frees her up. Great. For those of us that don't know anything about Bob Hamill, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're a drummer, correct? Yes. I'm a drummer. I play guitar and I sing, but drums have been the main part of my musical life for, I don't know, (laughs) 30 years. Right. I grew up in Madison, Connecticut. Which was, uh, which is a uh, just a small town outside of New Haven, about a half hour east of New Haven, and uh, pretty pretty secluded kind of life, uh, living in the woods, you know, playing outside. Very conservative parents, not a rock and roll family in, in any respect. And when I turned twelve, it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I really got into it. When uh, 1985 hit, <laughs> 84, 85, I started really getting into it, into rock and roll music. My dad loved, as conservative as, as conservative as he was, he loved Elvis, Buddy Holly, and Jerry Lee Lewis. And I loved those records, too. And uh, the Great Balls of Fire was incredible when I heard it when I was, you know, five years old. And Sandy Nelson, which was, a, he was a famous drummer in the... Uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, he had a he had a bunch of solo singles, or my dad had a bunch of his solo singles in the house. So that was the first time I actually heard drum soloing, and it, it really got me. <laughs> I got really into that when I first heard that. Now, now, were your parents were they musicians at all? No, uh, you know, my mom was a homemaker, and my dad was a pilot, and he flew helicopters in the Navy and was an airline pilot and flew for TWA and uh, US Air. Awesome. Yeah. And how, how long were you over in New Haven, in that New Haven, Connecticut area? How long were you out there? Until I graduated high school in 1992 and then went to college at NAU in Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. And are you familiar with Toad's Place? Absolutely. <laughs> Love Toad's Place. I saw quite a few bands there. One of the most mind-numbing uh, formative experiences was seeing King's X at Toad's Place touring their self-titled record. This had to be 90, 90, 91, and it blew my mind. Yeah, great band, King's X. So to our listeners, Toad's Place is an awesome club, and, and I think it's still probably going today in New Haven, Connecticut. And tons of bands play there. When I was out on the road doing tours, I always loved going through uh, Toad's Place to play a show. That's a cool venue. How did you end up in Arizona? You said you went to school in Arizona from Connecticut? Yeah, because my dad was a pilot, I could fly on standby for free. So I was able to check out these schools that I probably wouldn't have been able to if my dad wasn't a pilot. By the time I was a senior in high school, things at home were not super great. And I wasn't doing very well in school. I was definitely disillusioned. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just felt like I needed a change of environment, and thankfully, my parents let me fly out to Flagstaff to check out the Northern Arizona University campus, and they had a ski team, and they had a acting and music program, and I was into all those things, and I was sold. Their education standard didn't even care about it. It was exciting. It was near the Grand Canyon. They had a ski mountain. The weather was beautiful. I was totally into it. And so I decided to go there. It was great. 
Loved it. Awesome. You're an outdoor kind of guy? Yes. I love being outside. I love all of that. I wasn't a jock, but I right. loved to stuff by myself. I love to hike. I love to ski. I love to, I like to be, kind of have a one-on-one relationship with the outdoors, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's just kind of the impression I got when you're talking about skiing so much. I said, yeah, you know, you're maybe an outdoor kind of guy. It's weird, you know? I mean, in school, I was outgoing, but I wasn't. So I really didn't... The people I gravitated to in school and vice versa, people who gravitated to me were people who were into music, people who loved bands. Uh, None of us were good at sports. We weren't that great picking up the ladies, you know? (laughs) We were definitely in many ways isolated from what was going on in our high school and in our middle school too when i was younger so it was that part about being a loner that runs through so much music i definitely tuned into that aspect of it because i felt that way quite a bit so traveling saying goodbye to my buddies and going off to arizona by myself i was fine with that because in a lot of weird ways i was introverted but of course in a lot of weird ways i was extroverted i wanted to be seen i wanted to be noticed and drumming did that for me. So when did you, you got into rock and roll at a fairly early age. When did you get into drums? Like what, if your parents weren't musicians, what was the introduction to instruments and drumming? I mean, I I think the timing was just perfect. I was in my middle school marching band and I was playing trumpet. And I saw a guy named Dave Baker, who was just a really great drummer. He played the middle school stage band. He played marching band. It was just fascinating to watch this guy hit the drums. And it just made the trumpet just seem so boring. Playing these Sousa marches and all that, just terribly boring to me. But watching these guys and this guy Dave on drums, on drum kit or on snare drum, it just was exciting. It was cool. And right around that same time, I heard 5150, the Sammy Hagar Van Halen record. Uh I heard that record. And Alex is playing on that album at the time just blew me away and you know i know he's playing these simmons drums but at the time they sounded like from outer space to me and i i know that's not like a formative record but i I just that was the beginning of like my weird taste in music was that record i love that record it's probably my top three van halen records is 5150 i just i love every song on it the energy is incredible the drumming's incredible it's the last record where Alex Van Halen was an alcoholic. <laughs> so it's just, it's just bedlam. The way he plays on that album is just, it's unbelievable. And I'm sure that's how people felt when they first heard The Who for the first time. Right. You know, it's just, he, that record is just off the hook. And when that Live in New Haven video came out, Live Without a Net, which was their concert video, they played One Way to Rock, and I saw that. And I could not believe it. I thought, this is unbelievable. And so, yeah, that, Alex Van Halen's drumming, that record, I was, and of course, from then on, I went right back into the Van Halen catalog. The next record I bought was Van Halen 1, which I listened to for probably a year and a half. That's funny. You go from 5150 and you go all the way back to the beginning and it's so much of a diverse difference in 5150 in the first record. You know, that's, well, it's like a culture shock almost. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But I picked up on that primal vibe that ran through those six records, you know? And I um, I felt similarities between it, even though they're hard to, to catch. That same vibe to me, anyway, just as a listener, as a lover of Van Halen, I get it on that first record. And, you know, you were talking about in your earlier po- one of your earlier podcasts about John Karabi and, and Motley Crue. I think that's what happened with Van Halen. Mm-hmm. I think they got this guy, Sammy Hagar, and they it breathed new life into that band. And just like with that 94 Motley Crue record, that 5150 record is so energized and joyous. It's just, it's a great, great rock and roll record. I'll defend it to the death. (laughs) You know, there's definitely that fan base out there that's divided that for them, their Van Halen starts with 5150 and, and they'll defend that to the very end. And then there's folks like 
Well, like myself, I mean, I came in earlier in the game. So my Van Halen is the original Van Halen. Now, originally, I was so heartbroken over the division in Van Halen. I didn't want to hear 5150 and and Sammy Hagar Van Halen. But as time went on and Churdy set in, you go back and you discover and, and hey, these are great rock and roll records. They're just different. They're not... I mean, it's, it's two completely different bands for my, you know, in my opinion, it's just two completely different things, but I love both of them. Now, if I'm forced to choose, I'm going to choose the original because that's where I, that's where I came in, but I get it. You know, that's your Van Halen and and you love it. So it's all good. Well, well, me too. I mean, there was a precipitous drop off after 5150. My first concert ever rock concert was OU812 tour, that tour at Hartford Civic Center wow. in 1988. And uh, it blew my mind. It was fantastic. But I always felt that the record came up short. Uh, slow tempos, very um, pop-friendly music, very AOR, like adult-oriented radio-sounding stuff. And I have to say, I hung in there for another couple years before Unlawful Carnal Knowledge came out which to me is a terrible sounding record. I think it sounds, I think the drums sound awful on it. This is why music is such a beautiful thing. Because for me, <laughs> the, the for, un, for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge record, in my opinion, is probably, to me, one of the best Van Hagar records that they put out. I love that record. Like, I really like that record. I like Pound Cake. I like Judgment Day. I thought, I thought those two songs were awesome. Yeah. And then... You lost me for the rest of the record. I did not like Right Now. I did not care for, you know, those other songs. I, it, it, I saw the tour with yeah. uh, Alice Jane's opening. Awesome. Hey, it's it's all opinionated, beautiful stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Eddie Van Halen's a genius, but for, I think I'm on the same page with you. I mean, for me, that the live footage that you can find on YouTube of Van Halen live in Oakland, 1981, mm-hmm. on their Fair Warning tour is the ultimate it's that's that's the best band that has ever existed that band that played in uh, oakland that night in 1981 just so happened to be van halen no one has ever been better than that that is just it's mind-blowing that performance it's unbelievable it's just raw aggression so that was your first concert what were some of the first rock records you bought with your own money of course it was a mixed bag for sure i mean it started with van halen I ended up with my brother's Def Leppard tape, <laughs> Hysteria, in 87. Okay. I had that. I listened to that to death. So I went backwards with that catalog, uh, got Pyromania, High and Dry, On Through the Night. Oh, those are amazing albums. They're just incredible. The, uh, Mutt Lang is, I still hear Def Leppard and so much of Mutt Lang stuff. It's so funny. So yeah, Def Leppard, I got heavy into Yes. I got heavy into Genesis really big into um into king crimson pink floyd rush big time big time rush fan got deep into the rush catalog early on that, because that's a prerequisite isn't it you can't you can't play drums and not be a rush fan right yeah i mean it's weird you know i i almost jumped in to start talking about rush but i think i need to talk about van halen first because <laughs> that was really my first band that i got into and then i I gotta say rush was my next the next band that i got obsessive about being this kind of isolated loner type person it it was rush but that was probably around 1989 i saw the a show of a show of hands concert dv or cd i saw the a show of hands concert cd no it was a tape in a store in utah because i was on a ski trip with my family and i bought the tape because I loved the artwork on the album cover, and holy shit, I, it blew me away, every song. It was just so different sounding to me. So yeah, I really jumped headfirst into that. And at that point, I was a couple years into playing drums, and Neil Peart was just the other level, right? It was a new level of learning how to play drums like that. Like, holy shit, how do I even do what he's doing in a rhythm method? How do I even... I, it was hard to conceive and, and figure out, and that challenge, you know, whatever, that, that got me really into their music, trying to figure out all their songs, you know, 
yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a big Rush fan, and that just inspired me to get into more progressive music and more interesting music from there. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I can see where technically that would be uh, the direction to go for a challenging uh, musician, somebody that wants to be challenged. They would definitely gravitate towards that kind of stuff. Because Rush is such a vastly different band from period to period, what I'm imagining you you came in just like you said, show of hands, kind of that later um, Rush period. Uh, and then you went back maybe and discovered the more, I'll call it the more straight ahead rock rush. What do you prefer? I mean, what, what's your, um, do you like it all? Are there certain periods you like better than others? What's, what's your, your rush of choice, so to speak? I love 78 through 82 hemispheres, permanent waves, moving pictures and signals. I love those records. They are just every song. It's beautiful. It's just great work. And I mean, you listen to Hemispheres and listen to Signals, and those are two different bands, you know? And I cut many a lawn listening to Signals. I listen to that quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's my favorite era. I think they were in top in top form at that, at that point. And of course, through the rest of their career, you know, even up to the late 90s, I thought Different Stages was a fantastic live album that really showcased, like, how badass they are like what road fiends they are they are just such a great live act especially in the late 90s i thought they were just awesome or you know 96 97 whenever um that test for echo tour was right. they were just in pristine shape but yeah that era for me yeah 78 8 to 82 i, I love and i know those are probably three different eras <laughs> in that span you know but those are my favorite records definitely yeah, I mean, they definitely uh, switched with the times and changed their sound up uh, over the course of time. So there's just vastly different eras of, of Rush, and some people don't like the rock version of Rush and prefer the keyboardy, um, instrumental type stuff, and, and vice versa. I was more of the rock side of things. I came into Rush on the rock side of things, and couldn't quite get into signals immediately it was tough for me after coming out of moving pictures to go to signals but over over time it's another one of those things that over time for me grew and and now it's kind of one of those things where i love everything i just respect it for the different errors that it is so i, I think what i really love about that time period is i love alex lifeson's playing i love the arpeggios that he's doing, the, the type of arpeggiated playing that he adopts, I just love that. It just gives the, it gives so much atmosphere to their to their music, and he's a supremely underrated guitarist in my mind. And I, I just love what he does. And, and sometimes you know you you've got you know a vocalist who's a really great bass player. You have an incredible drummer filling up all this space, and the way he can snake around that and just create these really cool soundscapes, these, these really cool moods competing with these two monster players, these two other monster players in his band, it blows me away. During that time period too, they are kind of competing with one another, trying to, you know, everybody's throwing the, the kitchen sink at the arrangement and he's just so skillful. I always enjoy listening to him play. He's just an incredible guitar player. Yeah, no doubt. You go to school out in Arizona. When do you start getting into bands and playing uh, in different bands as a, as a drummer? In high school, I, I had gotten most of my experience in a band as a singer, and I played in a, a cover band. And I hadn't really played in a, as a drummer in a band um, until I got to college. And my first semester, English class, I met these two guys in my English class, and one was a bass player and one was a guitar player. And we started this band uh, right away. My English teacher, actually, my freshman year English teacher, introduced us to each other. And we started playing the Elks Lodge up the street from Northern Arizona University. And uh, we were kind of a Mud Honey Nirvana clone. So we were, we were playing a lot of grunge music. And we were playing with these punk bands uh, in the Flagstaff punk rock scene which actually had a vibrant punk rock music scene and a lot of the, a lot of these punk rock bands on tour would stop to play in flagstaff so 
it was definitely uh, an education for me because, you know, you didn't have big acts playing Flagstaff. The bigger acts would play Phoenix, you know, two and a half hours away. So I really got a dose of a lot of these, like, road dog punk rock bands uh-huh. that would come and play the Elks Lodge. And, you know, one of those bands was The Offspring, and we actually opened for The Offspring in a skate park. Wow. And it was our show because the lead singer got in a fist fight with a guy in the crowd that grabbed his one of his other guitars and tried to play it. And we were three songs in, and I'm looking from behind the drum kit, and I'm watching the lead singer pounding this guy's face in. <laughs> I'm going, oh, that's cool. It's our biggest show yet, and it's over. <laughs> what year was this? About what year was this? This was 94, 95. Okay, so so that would make sense because really at this point in time, musically, I mean, that's all that stuff is what's happening, right? The grunge thing, the punk to a point, skate punk, things like that. It's all kind of happening in that time period. For the Offspring, the Offspring were still a small band at this point, right? Yes, they were on tour for their first release, which is an indie release called uh, Ignition. Uh-huh. That was their first record. Yeah, that, that's the thing. It's like I had such an awkward introduction to to rock music or to music in general. By the time I was college age, all the stuff I loved was so passe, but I still loved it. But, you know, everybody was into, and I love these bands too, but everybody was into Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Nirvana, all that stuff. And it, it took me a minute to really warm up to it because I was so still into these um, these these classic rock bands. I was into Van Halen. I loved, you know, Def Leppard. I loved Rush. I loved Genesis. I loved all this stuff. Right. But, you know, I, in a lot of ways, in the late 80s, the writing was on the wall. I mean, there was not a band that had a song on the radio that didn't start with an acoustic guitar and then go into a ballad and just bore you to death. Right. And... You could see it coming, right? 88, 89, there were some good bands still out there, but a lot of the stuff on the radio was just really hard to listen to. It was the new stuff that you heard was just, you know, for me, I warmed up to Warrant much later because when Warrant came out, yeah, there were a couple, couple songs on that record I liked and actually a couple songs on the second album I liked too like Uncle Tom's Cabin I love that song right but a lot of it was just oh this is so sappy and so just syrupy and not my thing right um, so it was cool that you know Nirvana came around but you know it brought its own sameness you know so it it was weird it was definitely weird I I love the bombast I always have loved the bombast of you know that 80s rock sound a lot of the 90s Aside from those big 90s bands, it was wanting, man. I mean, it, it, it was weird, for sure. Yeah, You're hanging out in Flagstaff, you're playing in bands, you're opening up for other bands, and where does that lead you? Well, okay, so the band I was in, that, that grunge band was called Garment Bosia, because we were really into Twin Peaks. <laughs> and, <Okay. laughs> so, you know, the little, the, the, the little person, you know, who speaks backwards talks about his Garment Bosia, and it means pain and sorrow, you know, really deep. <laughs> okay, got it. So that band breaks up, and I meet this guy, Sutton, Sutton Althizer, who's a guitar player, and he's got a band called Soulcracker. And long story short, those two guys leave the band, and he wants to start another band. And I liked his band, Soulcracker. And I'm like, well, let's get together. So two buddies of mine and a, couple buddy, and a buddy of his, we all started a band together. And it was, we kept the name Soulcracker, and it was this funky ska thing. We had a sax player who could play other instruments. Sutton was an accomplished guitar player, really good musician and singer. We had this guy named Beastie who was just this, he was a buddy of ours, still a buddy of ours, and he was just this crazy dancing guy, right, who could sing and could write really good lyrics. And then my friend, my high school friend, uh, Aaron Murray, was on bass. And I was the self-taught drummer in a band with guys that knew how to read music, understood arrangement. I mean, they, they were really good. I mean, especially Matt Johnson, the sax player, was really a well-educated musician. So in the early stages, you know, I'm in my early, very early 20s, I got to learn songcraft and learned how to write pop songs and how to arrange them. And we would jam hours and hours a day 
in uh, this two-bedroom shithole apartment I lived in in Flagstaff. It was disgusting. I mean, the dishwasher had about four inches of water in it that, that stayed in the dishwasher for over a year. So the whole place stunk, garbage everywhere, no one cleaned. I mean, it was just horrible. <laughs> My parents came to visit one time and my mom cried. That's how disgusting. <laughs> we all live there. I mean, when I read the book, The Dirt, the Motley Crue book, The Dirt, and they yeah. talk about their, their place that they had just off Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. That's exactly what our place was like, just without the, the hot chicks. <laughs> right. It was disgusting. But we played nonstop and we got a residency at a local bar called the Monta Vista, where the owner there, Bill sat down with us and we were like hey we're looking to play some shows and he's like you want to play some shows i mean just on faith and he booked us and we played for years at the monta vista and we would um jam out songs on stage and just like so many bands in the past we wrote songs on stage like through our jamming and playing together songs would take shape and um beastie was such a skilled writer he could take just these funny jokes these in these inside jokes just that the band would laugh at and he would make great songs out of them and um so yeah i mean all through college my four years in college uh we toured all over the southwest and played everywhere and honestly i mean i was way into music way more than i was my studies and i still was able to graduate but i mean playing music was uh everything to me at that point well and you touched on something here that I think is a little bit of a lost art, and I don't think people really, you know, they don't think about this, but back in the day, a lot of the big rock bands, I mean, literally, they would write an album at soundcheck while they were on tour, and then come off the road from being on tour, record a new record, and go right back out on the road. And that's why bands like Rush and Kiss and those type bands, they were able to put out a new record every year. Sometimes even twice a year they would put out a new record because that's kind of what they were doing is they were writing songs and rehearsing songs in soundcheck on tours that they were doing. So uh, that's I think that might be a little bit of a lost art these days, you know? Oh man, so true. And and I've I've run into that problem personally, just after Soulcracker, trying to play with guys that live in L.A. and trying to get good music going from practicing once a week and trying to create authentic sounding, spontaneous rock and roll music in just different environment than the road. And I meet younger people, younger artists, singer songwriters that just want to post to their Facebook page or their Instagram page to get people to come out to their shows. And it seems like more than ever, I see younger people avoiding the road like the plague. They're so afraid to go out and play to nobody. And they're so afraid to get in a van, a disgusting van, and just do the road work. And I think that that music has suffered, definitely. Rock and roll music has suffered because of that. Uh, in a lot of ways, and of course, you have you have your outliers. You have different bands. You have bands that newer bands now that are, are are doing that to a degree, but the environment is so much different. It's harder to book gigs. There are less rock clubs. Oh, I mean, completely. It, it's completely yeah. changed. Yeah. We talked about it. Let's jump into it. Let's jump into Soulcracker because, you know, a lot of the listeners, they don't know what Soulcracker is. And so I want to educate them a little background and and history on Soulcracker. And then let's kind of talk about how all that kind of happened for you guys. Soulcracker, of course, was one of four bands on the VH1 show Bands on the Run, which was back in, what, 2001, correct? Right. And so the premise of this show, and I remember watching a little bit of this show back in the day. I don't remember a ton about it. I do remember uh, when I went back and kind of did a little bit of the research, I do remember hearing the name of the band that won it all, but uh, I don't remember much else from that season or that show back in 2001, but the premise of the show was that there were four bands. Each band played a gig in a selected city, 
and the act that made the most money from tickets and merchandise sales wins. Uh, and they and you guys set your own prices and promote and promote your own shows, and you have to survive on twenty bucks a day per band member with gas and phone card and a hotel room. Is that about right? Yeah, that's good. You have a good memory. You know this better. You know it better than me. But yes, that's right. Totally. So it's funny because it says phone cards, which of course you don't need phone cards anymore with uh, with cell phones. But uh, but back in two thousand one, you certainly did. So that was the premise of the show, and and it was it was Soul Cracker, and you guys were technically you guys were out of San Diego. Is that right? Right. After NAU, we all moved to San Diego and uh, made our home there. Yeah. Okay. And, and you, you set out to try and uh, crack the big leagues uh, in San Diego with the band, right? Exactly. Yep. We moved out there in 97, got ourselves another residency. Actually, uh, one of the first bands we ever played with, they were called Dishwater. They were kind of like a Blind Melon clone, mm-hmm. but um, one of the guys in the band... His name was Jason Hill, and he started a band called Convoy, and then a band called, I think, Louis the 14th or Louis the 15th, which was like kind of a popular um, alternative band mm-hmm. a few years back, and we actually became pretty good friends with him. He's a really cool guy, and uh, he's now the, composes all the music for Mindhunter, the, uh, the show on, um, on Netflix. Okay. It's just a police procedural it's just wild, just that he was like one of the first guys we ever met when we came to San Diego. But, yeah, I mean, we, we moved to San Diego, and again, it was four guys in a one-bedroom, and then Matt, the sax player, was in an, another apartment across the way from us with his, his fiance, and it was awesome. It was just incredible. We, it was, I made 300, if I made $300 in a week, it was incredible. Right. Typically, probably 150 a week. But all we were doing was playing music and uh, paying our rent in this shitbox that we lived in. And I was surfing every day. I mean, it was just awesome living near the beach and playing music all the time. It was incredible. And we did that for a few years, touring back to Arizona, you know, up through Northern California, Utah, Nevada. We did that for a few years. And then um, I got a job at a uh, Internet-based record label around 1999 it was right around the napster revolution right it was right around napster started to happen mp3.com that thing it's just about before the 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 dot-com bubble exploded Uh i got this job a couple guys in my band after me got hired at this company and um we were one of the flagship ended up to be one of the flagship bands on this internet record label and one of the guys had a meeting with mtv and they were shopping or they were looking around for acts that would be in this pilot for the series called Bands on the Run. And we were one of the suggested bands from our label. They liked us. We did some. Uh, we did a video interview. They loved that. And then we shot the pilot in 2000 up in San Francisco with the other bands, with Flickerstick and Harlow. And the show got picked up, and we were blown away. We could not believe it. Like, holy shit. This is it. We're gonna make it. You know, <laughs> we're, gonna, <laughs> we're gonna do this shit, right? Yeah. It just—we were all blown away and super excited. And um, yeah, and then about I guess seven months later, we started shooting the series. So that, yeah, and then the series aired. I guess in late 2001. Uh, my memory's a little hazy on that, but it was uh, an incredible experience. Yeah, we played 13 cities, and we tried our best to win this game show. Right? We just tried to sell as many CDs as we could, get people to come to the shows. Because in a lot of ways, that's what we had done before. And we wanted to win, right? We wanted, we had practical reasons. We wanted to win the money so we could buy new gear and and maybe get a record deal. Like, let's do this, right? Let's win this dumb show. And that's exactly how we went into it. Real quick, so here's what you were playing for, just to refresh everybody's memory. What you were playing for was essentially 50 grand in cash and $100,000 in musical equipment from Guitar Center, and then a showcase in front of record execs and a fully produced music video to be aired on VH1 in the season finale. That's what essentially you were playing for. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
this is our big chance, right? <laughs> yeah, this is this is this is the um, uh, American Idol for rock bands before American Idol. Totally right. Survivor for rock bands. Yeah. Road rock bands. Yeah. yeah, I think Survivor for rock bands is probably uh, even better uh, because you know you're out there, you're you're hoofing it for um, twenty bucks a day, and and uh, uh, you're doing all the work yourselves. You're promoting, you're you're setting your ticket prices. So they're they're booking the gigs. They're saying, hey, uh, Soulcracker, you're going to play Atlanta on this date. Uh, go push your show and see how much uh, tickets you sell and how uh, how many uh, shirts you sell. Exactly. And, and the thing is, you know, they didn't quite, they didn't quite um, streamline this format yet. So really, most of the show, at least the day-in-the-life aspects of the show, I mean, that stuff was real. I mean, they, they followed us with cameras 24-7. Yeah. And you know, I've been a producer on other shows. Like, I, I worked on Celebrity Wife Swap. <laughs> and that's a show that is completely, completely scripted uh-huh. from the up, right? It's a show. It's, we're not... We're not necessarily telling these people exactly what to say, but every every moment is is planned in advance. Right. With with fans on the run, really, it was off the cuff. It was of that old school idea of let's really capture the lives of these people. And so, I mean, it was a production. They had a day crew and a night crew. We had a guy uh, running cameras and audio in the back of our van behind a, a fake wall. I mean, it was just nuts. And it was crazy. It got crazy. After about a month of these guys following you around, you start to get a little nutty. And the cracks start showing in your band. You can't help it. You're going to fight. There's going to be tension. It's going to get weird. And it totally got weird. But we got out of it. And I mean, we're all still pals. (laughs) But it was definitely, it got to be very trippy having uh, these cameras in your face all the time. How long was the recording? Like, how long did this actually take place, the recording and and all of that? How long was that whole uh, experience? I think it was two months. I think we started in October. No, I I think it was, yeah, all the way up to Christmas break. So I think late October to, yeah, late October to mid-December. It was long. Yeah, it was two months on the road. I'm pretty sure, something like that. It's 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 a hazy memory, but we had 13 stops, so got to think at least almost a week in each each city. Yeah, so so it shows what it shows here that they aired episodes from from the beginning of April, so April 2nd, 2001, and this is when the shows aired. From April 2nd, 2001 to July 17, 2001, which included the reunion show, they, they aired these, uh, I guess it was 16 total episodes. And those 16 episodes covered San Francisco, Chicago, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Nashville, Memphis, New Orleans, Atlanta, Tampa, and Miami. Yeah, a couple places were, a couple shows covered the same city. So some of those cities... I think Fort Lauderdale, there were two episodes there. Uh, San Francisco was the pilot that we shot, you know, a few months earlier than when the show began. Yep. Two episodes in two episodes in Atlanta, two episodes, just like you said, in Fort Lauderdale, two episodes in Chicago. Those were the those were the cities that were. Oh, and two episodes, Columbus. Oh, that's right. Columbus, too. Do, do, yeah, you, it, do you remember where you played in Atlanta? The boot. The boot. We played the Star Bar. The Star played, Bar, played, I know that place. Place was awesome. Yeah, and we played this metal place called the Boot. It gets convoluted, but at, you know, at that time when we were doing bands on the run, we were playing like as an alternative punk rock band. Okay. Not so much punk rock, but we had like a mall punk vibe in our band. So we were playing like this kind of like poppy, Weezer-y type music. Uh huh. And I loved it. It was great. But we had a deep catalog, so. We were play, we'd play the Star Bar, and we'd play like, the stuff that we had written most recently. And then we went across the street to play The Boot, which was like this metal bar. And we, have, we had about six really heavy songs that we had written over you know, the seven years or eight years we had been a band. And so we were able to go to The Boot and just like, play this like, crazy heavy material that we had. And uh, it was awesome to be able to go from the Star Bar and play kind of like our poppy stuff and then go to The Boot 
which was like a last minute show. We booked it like that night and we went there and we just played all our, our crazy heavy stuff. And I have to say, you know, understand this. So the listeners, you should understand that VH1 airing a show like this in 2001, none of these bands that were on this show, Flickerstick, Harlow, Josh Dodd's band, Soulcracker, none of these bands were hard rock or metal bands. They were all alternative or rock or pop rock, what alternative rock, indie rock, whatever you want to call it. But it wasn't, it definitely wasn't hard rock or metal because that was uh, passe at this point, right? That's right. Totally. But at the same time, we gravitated to those scenes when we went to these towns because it spoke our language, especially mine, because I love metal and I love hard rock music. Right. And when we went and it was like that in Columbus, it was like that in Atlanta, it was like that in Fort Lauderdale, where we got there and we were able to kind of tap into the scene or whatever. So we were able to go to these parties and invite a bunch of people and because we connected so well with those local crowds, we were able to pack a lot of the places we played with people who wouldn't necessarily like our music, but we vibed with them on a, on a kind of personal level that they're like, yeah, I'll fucking come out and see you play and drink some beers. It sounds fucking awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's what happened. And, um, that's why we did well in terms of, they didn't necessarily like our music, <laughs> but they came to the show and they bought our CDs and we hung out and they bought tickets to the show. And, you know, and we did make some fans. You know, when we played our final show in Fort Lauderdale, Ingve Malmsteen was one of the judges and he was wasted and he came up to us and he, he, he pointed at our guitar player, uh, my friend Ramsey, and he said, I choose you. You are the best. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So he voted for Soulcracker in the, that last battle of the band, which was awesome. <laughs> wow. That's hilarious. Oh, dude so funny it was awesome it was great so yeah we toured uh i think our first city that we played was chicago and from chicago we bounced throughout the um east coast and the south and just played a bunch of venues and um it was a it was a mind-bending experience trying to win this game show trying to look cool trying to make sure that your, your shows were awesome and it's so funny they had all this gear man they had all this front of house gear and they would load in for hours. You know, they would show up at the venue, load in all the specialty equipment, all like this, the top of the line stuff into every venue we played. And when we watched the show, the mix was so bad for all the bands. It was like they lost the recordings from the show. Everything sounds like it was recorded on a camera. It sounds terrible. It's so depressing because there was so much work that went into making these shows sound awesome. So that was a big drag, like seeing some of these shows that we played and just the, the audio just sounding like dog shit. But, I mean, it was a new show. It, I mean, these shows are really difficult to pull off. Such an interesting experience. And, and, you know, after the show, we went on tour again. We toured the, the following summer. We hit the road and we, we did it. We did the whole U.S. We played like, I don't know, 60 shows. And... It was incredible. It was great until September 11th. <laughs> and then it sucked. Yeah. Exactly. That's right around the corner from then. And in the end of this show, the band Flickerstick ends up winning this thing, uh, which I vague, vaguely remember. You guys were the you guys were the follow ups, right? You were the the um, runner up, right? Yes, we were the second. We were first loser. <laughs> okay. First loser. That's funny. But yeah, we second. Yeah, we were the runner up. Yeah. Yep. And so, out of the four bands, though, I'm I'm looking at the four bands. I'm looking at the members because you know I'm I'm always curious because a lot of times when things like this happen, somebody emerges out of all these bands and goes and does something, you know, like here's this guy who was playing in flicker stick. And now he's the, you know, he's the guitar player in Van Halen or whatever, you know, just always something happens. But, um, I, you know, I'm not recognizing not to say these, these folks haven't gone on to do something, but I'm not recognizing anybody that necessarily sticks out as in the music industry today has gone on to do anything and flicker stick to my knowledge. I don't know if they're still a functioning band. If they are, I haven't heard that, but 
No, they're not. They're not a band anymore, but I do know that Brandon, the lead singer, still performs as uh-huh. a solo artist. He's quite good. He's got a good voice. Uh-huh. I, I think out of each band, they've all kind of had their brushes with bigger artists. I know Josh Dotis, the guy from the Josh Dotis band, he's the bald-headed piano player. He played with Mark Cohn for a bit. Okay. The Walking in Memphis guy. Yep, yep. I know he was his piano player for a second. And I uh, can't remember her name. She was the blonde drummer in Harlow, Rebecca. She married uh, Pat Smear from, from the Germs. Okay, and Rebecca Gibb, uh, yeah. Yeah, Rebecca Gibb. Super cool chick. Really nice. You know, we all fought with each other and stuff because we were all trying to win that money and get a record deal and all this bullshit. But, I mean, for the most part, everybody on that show was pretty pretty cool. It, it, it was it was a great experience, and uh, I definitely learned a lot about television being on that show. That's what you're doing nowadays, right? You're in you're in the uh, television entertainment industry now, right? Yeah, that's right. I, after Bands on the Run, I, I stayed friends with a lot of people in the production and started working at MTV. I started uh, working on um, Becoming, which was a a video show where we remade videos, uh, remade popular videos with fans of the band that the video was made about. Yep. And then uh, making the video, I worked at making the video for a year. And then, uh, yeah, I, I, that started my TV career. And so, and so did you get, did you get um, into those areas and into those jobs from, um, from networking and people you met on bands on the run? Yes. That's yep. awesome, man. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, I'm still friends with a lot of those people from the show. Yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, in my mind, I, I, I try to have a practical outlook throughout the whole taping, the whole show, which is, hey, let's not make this a make or break. Let's let's get something out of this no matter where it goes. Right. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate that it, it made sense for these people to hire me on to another show after that one wrapped and uh, really helped me out. It was great. That's very cool, man. That's, you know, you can't ask for more than that. I mean, you took, you took an opportunity for one reason or another and turned it into something, something else. And, and there's, you know, there's nothing bad that can be uh, said about something like that for sure. Are you enjoying what you're doing now? Yeah. I mean, I, I love production. I love, you know, these days I, I put whole projects together. I do a lot of advertising work. Uh, and a lot of direct response content projects. So I do. I love that a lot. And uh, I wouldn't be able to live here or afford to live here without that career. So I, I, I love doing that. And I still I still perform. I still play. When I get a chance, I do pick up gigs here and there. I record. I write my own music. You know, I play as much as I can, as much as one can with two kids, a wife, and a mortgage. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We all understand that. I, I make a I make a podcast with a wife, a mortgage, and no kids. So <laughs> nice, awesome. And I can identify with your production work in the TV industry because uh, when I'm not making a podcast, I'm busy being an extra on uh, TV and movies. So <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so, so there you go. We all do what we need to do uh, to pay the mortgage. Uh, but like you, you know, I, I had a lot of brushes with, uh, with people, entertainers and things uh, in the industry over the years. So you've got a few stories yourself, I think, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, the one thing I learned about, it is who you know, definitely, to make it in the entertainment world, right? To make it as a rock band or a singer or an actor. But you also have to be able to do it right you have to you have to be able to to deliver you can't just go hang out with bill a coin and then expect to get something out of it just because you met the guy you, you really have to have the stuff in your back pocket you have to have those songs you have to have that talent because sometimes you know you get one shot and you have to blow people away right off the bat and if you don't do that it's, it could be a missed opportunity for sure I think we put a lot of stake into knowing famous people or connecting with famous people. I think that maybe it's better that you attract people to your thing that you're doing and not, I think people worry too much about networking. They worry, you know, musicians are such shitty marketers. They should just avoid it altogether and let somebody else handle it for them. 
so I've definitely met a lot of different, I mean, some people I've met slash at house of blues when we played that final episode of bands on the run, we did a final performance, all four bands at house of blues. And, um, it was amazing. It was killer. He was super nice. It was awesome. It was such a great experience. Yeah. So great walking away from that. I met little Richard that night too. Oh, wow. What was that like? Incredible. The coolest guy. He was living in the Hyatt, you know, the riot house. Yeah. The riot there. house right across the street. Yep. He was at the Hyatt when we were there and he had been living there for months. He'd just been hanging out there and he was walking down the, he had a, uh, he had his pajamas on and he had slippers on and he was walking down the hall and he stopped into our hotel room. He's like, Hey boys. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. And we taught, we rapped with him for a few minutes. He's super cool. Oh, just great. I love little Richard. That's very cool. I mean, back in, you know, the riot house right across the street from the, from the house of blues, which they tore down that house of blues right on sunset. Yeah. It's pretty sad, man. It's, it's, it's no more. It's gone. Yeah, did some cool shows at that place and stayed right across the street at the Riot House. You were talking about on um, some of the other podcasts I've listened to, the Growing Up Rock podcasts that I've been listening to. Our booking agent that we got through Bands of the Run, they were called Artists Worldwide. So they booked L.A. Guns, Bullet Boys, Motorhead, all these bands that you get, uh, Enough is Enough. Yeah. So we would find ourselves, when we played L.A., we would find ourselves... Um, on the bill with a lot of these bands we played with enough's enough we played with the bullet boys we played um with la guns we played all these crazy shows it was great was there anybody that you ran into that um in particular that that maybe uh didn't treat uh, you guys very well along the way yeah <laughs> yes you want to share sure what yeah whatever why not we had a show with Enough's Enough at the Viper Room. This had to be 2002. Uh-huh. And uh, we we had been playing these shows in L.A. We were playing like once a month at the Viper Room with a different, bigger band than us. So we would play and then a larger act would play. And uh, we were loading in. It was the afternoon. And I had to use the bathroom really badly. And anybody who's been to the Viper Room, everything is small at the Viper Room. Bathroom's also super small. It's There's a stall... And then there's a sink, and that's about it. And I was using the stall. And, you know, we hadn't met the band yet. You know, Soulcracker hadn't met Enough's Enough yet. We're just loading in, getting our wits about ourselves. I'm using the facilities. I hear the door open, and then I hear, What the fuck, man? And I'm like, I'm like, hey. He's like, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing to the bathroom? And the dude is just screaming at me through the the other side of the stall and i'm like fuck you dude let me use the bathroom he's like fuck you motherfucker i'm gonna fucking kick your ass i'm like well okay fine when i get the fuck out of here i am i'm gonna fucking fight you you're a fucking dead man so we're like yelling and screaming at each other it's completely ridiculous wow so i get out of the bathroom and it's donnie from enough's enough wow lead singer that's his name donnie right yeah donnie donnie vi yeah and I get out of the bathroom, right? And Donnie has completely forgotten the whole thing. And he's draped over the, the shoulders of Ramsey, the guitar player in my band. And then he's just hugging everybody. He's like, totally <laughs> fucked up at this point. Oh, dude. It was crazy. I, 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 was, I thought we were going to get in a fight because I stuck up in the bathroom. <laughs> in the room. Wow. So, yeah, gross story, but true. And then they proceeded to kick ass. Enough's enough blew me away. They were incredible. Donnie was great. It's uh, crazy how how uh, functioning addicts can function on stage, isn't it? Yeah, man. And at that point, I could tell an addict pretty quickly. And I could see it with this guy. And uh, The guy was strung out. I mean, he was um, sure. super skinny. But, you know, super sweet, too, in a weird, crazy way. So... When you're not stinking up his bathroom, dude. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of Soulcracker stories. They're they're more disgusting stories that I could tell. It was really cool because I I knew Fly High Michelle, and that's all I really knew. I knew that album that came out in 1989. 
but seeing them play live, that guitar player they had was just out of control. So, so good. They were great. They were a great band. That's cool. I would love to get into some more stories because I think you got a ton of stories and we've only really touched on on a couple things, but I wanted to kind of talk about uh, your history and your earliest memories um, revolving around music. So come back and let's get into some of these uh, soul cracker stories and some of these brushes with some of these other bands because you guys, at one point in time down in Florida, you guys met with Bill LaCoyne, who our listeners, of course, know who Bill LaCoyne is, the groundbreaking manager behind KISS and KISS's heydays. Uh, and you guys also recorded uh, a record up at Richie Cotson's studios, which I want to talk to you a little bit about your interaction. Did you have interaction with Richie when you guys were doing that? Very, very brief but I did talk to him for a few minutes. This was with another band that I was in called Van Stone. It was very Spinal Tap-esque, except way uh, more X-rated and gross. Right. Uh, kind of like Gwar. It was Gwar meets Spinal Tap. Right and, on. Uh, yeah. Richie uh, is featured on a couple of the songs on the record. One's called Spring Break Forever. You can find it on YouTube. And um, it's the sickest solo I've ever heard. It is incredible. I'm not the drummer on that particular song. In fact, all the Richie songs that he features on, it's Gary Novak. It's not, it's this, uh, uh, this guy who's just an incredible drummer that they hired before I was in the band. Right on. So, uh, but check out, yeah, check out that song, Spring Break Forever, or uh, Beer Run is another one that Richie just kills it. So, yeah, Richie, Richie's super nice, and he, I like his solo material. I, I like his like early 2000s, mid 2000s solo material. I think it's really, it's a lot different than the winery dog stuff. But yeah, he's got a great voice. He's a, he's, um, he's a guy who could definitely sing for Soundgarden or something if they ever were to reform. Right know? on. That's awesome. So what are you listening to these days? What's your music of choice these days? It's hard, man. I, I, I try to find new stuff that I like. And I always go end up with the prog stuff. I always fall back into the prog pit. I love, I'm a big fan of Porcupine Tree. I like Stephen Wilson a lot. There's this band out of the UK called Frost that I think is incredible. Are you a streamer or are you, uh, do you stream or do you uh, purchase or do you download? What do you, what do you like to do? I am a streamer. A hundred percent. I've adapted to yeah. the new reality. Uh, I used to buy vinyl. I used to buy tapes and CDs, but it's just too easy. It's, you know, I'm in my car for work all the time. Sure. I'm in shitty LA traffic constantly. It's just, it's just easy to queue up Spotify and listen to whatever. What better place to listen to podcasts too? Uh, that's right. Totally. Uh, that's in, that's, those are, that's the media I listen to music and podcasts. Do you listen to podcasts on Spotify or do you listen to podcasts like on iTunes or, or whatever? Um, what's the, uh, What's the app that comes with the iPhone? That's that's the one I listen to. Uh, it's just called Podcast. Yeah, podcast. Apple Podcast. So, yeah. Yeah. Because I know Spotify has podcasts too these days. That's right. Yep. But yeah, it's you guys. I listen to you guys. I love your podcast. I listen to uh, Mark Maron's podcast, Joe Rogan's podcast, and I listen mm -hmm. to a podcast called The Trap Set, which I love too. Yeah. Very cool. Well, what was your favorite song off of 5150? Pick something to play us out with. Let's go with the title track, man. 5150. I love that song. I yeah. love the intro to that song. I love that song, too. All right, uh, Bob, we're going we're gonna to come back uh, at another time and get into some of these uh, Soul Cracker stories because I think you got a bunch of stories that uh, our listeners are going to want to hear. So for now, we'll play out with 5150. We'll figure it out. We'll uh, get you back on for another episode. Is that cool? Oh, that's great. I'm an open book. I'd love to talk more about music. That'd be great. Thanks. Awesome. 5150 from Van Halen. Here you go.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.